Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana, on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started. Are parents criminally responsible if their child commits a mass shooting? That's the question being debated in a courtroom in Oxford, Michigan. On November 30, 2021, a 15-year-old student opened fire at Oxford High School in Michigan, killing four students and injuring seven others. The gunman has already been sentenced to life in prison without parole last year, but now prosecutors are arguing that his parents, Jennifer and James Crumbly, were negligent and could have prevented the tragedy if they attended to their son's mental health. They're also accused of making a gun accessible at home. Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald brought the case against the Crumbleys. In a December 2021 press conference, she referenced a school worksheet found on Ethan's desk. It was covered with violent drawings. The notion that a parent could read those words and also know that their son had access to a deadly weapon that they gave him is unconscionable, and, it, and I think it's criminal. So what legal precedent could this Michigan trial set? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more after this short break. Is it possible to engineer our way out of the climate crisis? Some entrepreneurs want to shoot particles into the stratosphere to combat global warming. Experts say regulations on this technology aren't keeping up. The world of solar geoengineering on the latest episode of the Sunday Story from NPR's Up First podcast. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Let's meet our guests. Joining us now is Echo Yanka. He's an associate dean for faculty and research and the Thomas M. Cooley Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. Echo, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Chip Brownlee. He's a reporter at The Trace. That's a newsroom covering gun policy. Chip, it's great to have you. Hey, Jen. Thanks for having me. I echo the parents of the Oxford High School shooter are charged with involuntary manslaughter. What is Oakland County trying to prove in this case? Well, Oakland County, the the kind of heart of the moral, the legal and moral charge is that their actions directly led to the death of the children who were victims in that crime, that their actions were so grossly negligent, so um, causally related that we should treat them as though they had a hand in the killing. Uh, the the problem the prosecutor faced, the challenge the prosecutor faces, is that one of the bedrock principles we teach when students walk in the door in law school is that when somebody else acts, somebody who's um, a responsible adult, that 
as we say, severs the causal chain. That's their action, not yours. And that's such a basic principle, as I say, that it's sort of 1L um, standard. You would almost lose points from the exam if you didn't answer that way. So we have this bedrock principle that when he did it, it, he's responsible for it. But facing that are a set of facts which are probably as um, as disturbing, as testing, as, as uh, stretching our imagination as you could even make up. We got this text from one of our listeners who says, I think adults are absolutely responsible for a child's access to firearms. We punish a drug dealer who sold the dose that killed someone. If a parent gives a child a gun and they commit a crime with it, the parents are the dealers. If we had reasonable gun safety laws, we could have consequences for adults based on unlocked cabinets, unsafe guns, and guns with military-grade capabilities. We'll get to some of the new laws uh, that passed in Michigan around gun safety a little later in the hour, but Echo, I mean, what evidence is the the county using to make the case that these parents are culpable in this shooting? Because it sounds like, as you said, this this sort of runs aground of some of the basics of law. Yeah, you know your your email and the reader picks up right on the uh, right points. So, for example, the cases where drug dealers are responsible for somebody's use and overdose actually have been quite controversial because of the exact same thinking that once I give you something, if you're the one who injects it again, that's your responsibility. Um, but as the as the example shows, there are a few um, occasional exceptions. Um, The most obvious one has been the few rare cases where we think if somebody is irresponsible and you then arm them, you're responsible for their actions. So, for example, if I give an insane person a gun and they use that weapon to harm you, I know they're insane and they use that weapon. Or if I gave truly a child a gun, I give a four-year-old a gun and then the four-year-old shoots you. I leave a gun lying around and the four-year-old shoots you. Um then I might be responsible. So what the prosecutor has to prove is that this case is extraordinary enough to push our legal intuitions, that here you have a child who's in deep mental distress, who tells his parents over and over he's in deep mental distress. He searches the web uh, for um, how to commit murders. He searches the web for ammunition. Um, He starts having suicidal ideations. He draws pictures of himself killing people. Um, He asks his parents directly. He says, I hear demons in in my head. I need help. And then the very day of the shooting, the school calls the parents in because he's been drawing these violent images on his his schoolwork. A teacher finds them, is really disturbed. And the school asks the parents to take him home, and the parents decline to do so. So as those facts build up and up and up, as those facts seem increasingly outrageous, what the prosecutor wants us to imagine is this really is like leaving a gun around, right? And, you know, while he's doing all this, the parents are aware that he has a loaded gun that they've made available to him. So the intuition is, at what point do we think this is really like placing the gun in the hand of somebody pretty close to irresponsible for which you should bear some legal responsibility?
We got this email from Rodney who says the mother of a child who shot a teacher in Newport News, Virginia, was found guilty of neglect. So it should be pretty straightforward that the parents in the Michigan shooting would also be found guilty. With anyone under 18, unfortunately, the parents bear the responsibility. Uh, just for clarity, in the Newport News, Virginia uh, case that Rodney's referencing, he says the, the parent there was found guilty of neglect. In this case, the parents are charged with involuntary manslaughter. Chip, this isn't the first parental responsibility case involving gun safety. There was a 2016 case in Detroit where a man left a loaded shotgun accessible to his two children, and that resulted in the death of his nine-year-old son. That man was found guilty and charged with involuntary manslaughter. How do you think the case in Oxford, Michigan differs? Well, I mean, this is really the first time that we've seen parents be charged and put on trial for their you know, alleged criminal culpability in a mass shooting. Um, like you mentioned, there have been some other cases um, in regards to other types of gun violence, but this is really the first time we've seen this used in a mass shooting. And like you mentioned, there have been other cases where parents have been charged with crimes, but not crimes that are directly um, related to the mass shooting itself. So another example is um, after the July 4th shooting um, in Highland Park, Illinois in 2022, the father there was charged with reckless conduct. Um, for signing on to his child's firearm owner's identification card. So he only received 60 days in jail for that one. Um, and that's just an example of how parents have been charged with things before, but not things that are directly related to the mass shooting itself. Usually they're more connected to neglect or um, reckless conduct rather than actually being culpable in the shooting. We got this from Jay, who emails, what precedent would this case set for parents of children who die by suicide? If parents are liable for their child killing others due to signs they have overlooked, why would they not be liable for their child killing themselves? Echo? Yeah, I I think um, that email presses on one of the real worries. I mean, as I said, this case has... um This case has startling facts, the kind of facts that I would put in an exam just to see how far my students would nod along with the principal before finally saying, this is too far. And startling facts like this precisely are the kinds of facts that either change the law or sometimes give us exceptions to the law. But that being said, I think parents have the kind of terror that 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 email hints at, right? So, you know, every parent out there... God willing, every parent out there thinks, I am doing my level best. I want to be terrific. I want my child to flourish. Um, it, it's, it's what parents wake up to do. But lots of parents know that they have a troubled child, that they have a child who's dealing with mental health issues, a child maybe who's thinking about suicide or murder. And I think, uh, or, you know, hopefully, you know, you, who, your child who goes to that joyride um, and you're trying to get them back on the straight and narrow, but God knows they could have killed somebody. And and I think lots of parents are going to have the question deep in their mind, at what point am I not responsible for this person's actions? At what point, you know, my 10-year-old, my 12-year-old, my 15-year-old, at what point do I get to try my best as a parent but not be responsible if they decide to kill themselves, to drive drunk, or God forbid, to take up a gun and hurt somebody else? That at some point, I can't be I can't be the murderer. Mm. I mean, Chip, one of the questions in this case is about how the shooter got access to a gun. Uh, the weapon was purchased for him by his parents. 
And in around 76% of school shooting incidents, the gun came from the student's home. That's according to a study by the Secret Service in 2022. How have you seen discussions about parental responsibility shift over time? I mean, even aside from cases like this, school shootings, you know, more than 80% of kids and teens that die by suicide do so with their parents or relatives' firearm. And in most of the country, you have to be at least 21 to buy a handgun. Usually these things are done with handguns. Um, And it's illegal for, you know, people under 18 to have a handgun in most of the country. So it really makes you wonder, like, how are they getting access to the gun? And usually it's a a parent who has bought it for them or a parent who has it stored insecurely in their home. And anytime something like this happens, I think it does raise the question of what responsibility does the parent have? And um, we have seen a bunch of states across the country pass laws that require people to securely store their firearms. And usually those laws are directed at trying to keep kids in particular safe because this is such a such a pervasive issue. And I think it, um, again, every time something like this happens, this shooting, the Highland Park shooting, the Newport News shooting earlier um, that you mentioned, anytime one of these happens, it, it raises this question. Echo, what evidence specifically is Oakland County pointing to in this case to, to try to say these parents are culpable in part for the shooting? Yeah, so the facts that are the most disturbing really are the facts that um, the parents provided the gun for him. It was an early Christmas gift. The parents were well aware that he was struggling with deep mental health issues. Um, there's kind of a litany of background facts about their um, parenting or lack thereof, um, stories of excessive drinking, stories of him being abandoned for long periods of time. But the story is a culmination of that kind of absent parenting leading to just letting a gun lie in his hands uh, alongside the knowledge of his mental health issues. And then culminating, as I said, in the really dramatic um, and tragic facts that they knew that he was having suicidal ideations on that very day. Um, And when the school asked them to take him out of school, they refused to do so. One kind of damning fact is that when stories spread, when news spread around very quickly in Oxford, Michigan, that a shooting was occurring, um, the parents texted, the mother texted him um, and and texted him and just said, don't do it. So the idea there is that they were clearly aware that he was capable or on the edge of doing such a thing. And then, of course, immediately after the shooting, they fled their home. And so the prosecutor is using all these facts to push the jury to the idea that these aren't just parents who are suffering um, something they couldn't see coming, but rather parents who ignored every sign along the way. Well, we're hearing from you. One member of the Tax Club writes, justice should be determined based on the facts and the laws. Improving and enforcing background checks is essential. Anyone purchasing a gun or rifle should be required to complete safety training prior to ownership. Parents need to be held accountable for their possessions and responsible for securing any firearms. And Jamie emails, when I first heard the parents were being tried, I wasn't sure I agreed. Then I heard the reasoning and evidence of the parents' gross negligence. In this case, it seems clear they should be held accountable. I don't know how you legally delineate between this and other young adults who commit similar tragedies where their parents are not truly accountable in any way. Echo, what is the defense strategy here? What are they arguing about the Crumbly's culpability or lack thereof? 
Yeah, the defense has, you know, I think three powerful points. One is just the purely legal intuition, as I said, the purely legal principle that you're not responsible for somebody else's act, that this just isn't something um, isn't something that the law should extend or casually overlook. Um, the second is a real sense that whenever the signs were along the way, parents are not responsible for imagining the unimaginable, right? That is, of course they knew his, their son was troubled, but why would any parent leap to the idea that their son would turn from trouble, from fixations to actual mass murder? And, you know, while I think lots of these facts are make you shudder, there's a kind of, there's a kind of, um, one could understand the idea that parents say, look, I just, I can't imagine my son killing in this way. And the third, of course, I think is less legal and kind of a moral and social plea, a kind of question to the jury and, and perhaps through the jury to the rest of the country to think, hey, at what point are you no longer responsible for your child's actions? At what point do you get to do your best as a parent, but treat your child as their own person? And I, I think these facts will be very hard. I think this case is actually, despite the deep legal principle, a difficult one. But I also think the jury a jury will be given pause by that. We got this question from Guy who emails, wouldn't the purchase of the gun for someone who is ineligible because of age be considered a straw sale, a federal crime with a maximum sentence of 10 years? Chip, what can you tell us? Well, yes, in some cases. Um, it, it gets a little complicated because the federal law does allow some exceptions. So, like, if a parent bought a handgun and then gifted it to their kid and they were really only letting them take possession of it when they were going to a gun range or something like that, then that wouldn't necessarily be illegal, even if it was, even if, you know, like the parents said it was a gift to them, it might still be in their possession. So that, that gets kind of complicated, but still, again, in this, in this case, and it comes back to the moral questions, the parents bought a handgun for their son who used it to commit a mass shooting a little bit later. And that really and they did that, you know, without really thinking about the consequences and making sure that the handgun was stored in a safe way. Still to come, safe storage laws are in effect in half of U.S. states. How do they vary and how are they enforced? We'll be right back. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. So let's get back into the conversation and turn now to safe storage laws. About half of U.S. states have these types of laws for gun owners. Chip, how are they defined and how much do they vary from state to state? So there's really two different kinds of safe storage laws. There's the ones that usually go by the name safe storage laws, and those usually direct gun owners to store their guns in a particular way. So um, and. In some states, it's that they have to be locked up in a container or in a safe or with a cable tie um, or with a cable lock, rather. And uh, sometimes it requires that the ammunition be stored separately. Um, And then there's, you know, fines or repercussions if it's found that the gun is not stored in that way. There's also what are known as child access prevention laws. And these laws um, actually have um, criminal liability um, in some cases for parents if or really any gun owner, if a, um, a child is able to access a gun that is theirs or um, is likely to access a gun that they have. So um, in those cases, it's really the, those laws um, have some tougher liability for parents, especially if the gun is taken and used um, to harm somebody or harm the kid themselves. Um, so those are two really the two main types of safe storage laws. And like you said, about half of states have them. Most, The majority of those states that do have safe storage laws have the child access prevention kind. And even within the child access prevention laws, there's different kinds. Some that, um, you know, require actual neglect or recklessness and some that are um, more broad. And are those are usually the ones that the research finds are more effective because they don't necessarily require a shooting to happen for them to be enforced. Echo, what does safe storage laws look like in Michigan specifically? Well, as so often is the case, after the shooting in Oxford, Michigan passed a raft of new laws, um, including most, um, most uh, notably a safe storage law. Um, and so indeed, it, it it takes effect in just a few days, and so we'll we'll start to see exactly what effect they have. But as as, um, as Chip said, the focus of that is the idea that parents will have to have their guns locked up. Its relationship with the Oxford shooting is actually a little unclear. Uh, one of the parents' defenses is that they did have their gun safely stored, but of course, you know, a teenager is just as capable of opening a lockbox um, with a little information as as an adult. Um, uh, the prosecutor, I think one of the prosecutor's accusations is that they indeed did not, and, and they knew that he had the weapon on him. So on the one hand, the hope is that these laws will stop uh, future killings. Um, on the other hand, as is so often the case, it's not really perfectly clear that the laws that are passed in response to um, to a tragic event would have stopped precisely that tragic event. But perhaps we fixate on that too much in any case. When we talk about penalties for a violation of safe storage laws, what's what's the range of those penalties? And again, we know it varies from state to state. Yeah, I mean, it can range from fines to imprisonment. So like in Massachusetts, for example, their law, um, you can go to jail if you're if you don't store your your gun safely, so it, it really does range from just paying some money to going to jail. 
Echo, when we think about prosecution for the violation of safe storage laws, it seems that the moment you become aware that a weapon isn't being kept safely is when something happens with that weapon. So how difficult is it to prosecute violation of these laws? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, like any like any laws where you're using circumstantial evidence, it, it's not going to be terrifically easy. Um, you know, the 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 people who have access to the information are the ones who have the interest in defending themselves, right? Nobody was in the house. Nobody really knows what was happening. Did, did a adult or young adult child? Um, did a young adult child get access with their own on their own volition, or was it really lying around? So you're going to be looking for evidence of things like that. Um, but you know, I also think we should be clear that a lot of the reasons you pass laws are actually because of laws' normative pull, right? Not just the ability to prosecute. What they're hoping is that people see these laws and respond by locking up their guns, that people simply take the law on rather than just um, your prosecution after the fact. We're getting more questions about the case in Oxford, Michigan. Susan emails, how much responsibility does the school have with regards to the Michigan shooting? The school knew he had suicidal thoughts. And Nicole writes, what about the school's actions in this case? As a school psychologist, I have been responsible for conducting numerous student threat assessments. If it was felt that the student may be a danger to self or others, we would typically ask parents to take their child to the ER and return to school with a medical excuse. I'm so surprised that the school allow this student to return to class. Echo, just walk us through first. Um, there, there was a moment when there was concern about the shooter's in-class behavior, um, disturbing messages and, and um, writing on, on a piece of paper that a teacher saw. He was sent to the office to, to speak with school administration. What happened from there? Yeah, this is one of the things that's really just stunning about this case. I think it's one of those facts that really does inspire a prosecutor to say um, whatever the whatever the standard answer is, it doesn't fit here. Because precisely as your viewer mentioned, the school did call in the parents, and the school asked the parents to take him home. Uh, a teacher sees him scribbling images of people uh, bleeding on his exam, and I believe there's even a scribbling of a gun on the exam. The teacher takes the paper and, and essentially scribbles out the the disturbing drawing, sends him to the office, and precisely as indicated, the school says, please take him home. We think he's unwell. And the parents decline to take him home. And that's one of the key moments that the prosecutor says um, is part of their culpability. But lastly, when we ask um, why did the school let him stay, and this will be just absolutely critical in the prosecution's case, the school's going to say, we had no idea he was armed. It's one thing to have somebody who's disturbed, but for parents to know that he had access to a weapon they had bought for him and not let school administrators know that, that is, um, that's going to be perhaps the single most important fact in the trial. Hey, Chip, when we look at other school shootings, how often is the school itself looked at as being culpable for what occurred on its grounds? I don't, you know, I I don't know how often that happens. Um, I I think you know advocates are really pushing for a variety of different ways to go about this. So there's you know tip lines for students to report, um, you know, 
possibly dangerous situations. Um, but another thing that that people are really pushing for is maybe schools should be having conversations um, with parents, with parents who may be gun owners, about how you know to more safe, safely store their weapons so that um, things like this don't happen. And maybe that you know happens with. I did a story recently about some school nurses who wanted to have conversations um, with kids and their students' parents about whether there were firearms in the home and how to more you know how to more safely store them. So I think regardless of you know how often it happens with um, you know schools possibly knowing, and I think everyone you know that really looks at this issue would like there to be you know more conversations about how to safely store guns. I also want to refer to a conversation we had in 2022 about an emerging field of research called behavioral threat assessment. And this is a another approach being taken to try to prevent mass shootings. You can find that conversation at the 1A.org. Now, Echo, as you said, Michigan is set to implement a slate of new gun laws this year. You mentioned sta- safe storage. What else do these laws include? Well, so there's a variety of the laws. Um, Obviously, the safe storage one has gotten the most attention. Um, uh, I'm trying to recall because they passed rather quickly. So there's universal background checks, um, creating extreme risk protection orders. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The the extreme risk protection orders are the ones that go colloquially as the the red flag laws, um, allowing more intervention, the universal background checks, as you mentioned. And so... um, and and I should I should really alert the viewer the the listeners. This has been a real sea change in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, Michigan has been resistant to uh, new gun laws for really some time, for almost my entire lifetime. Um, but there was a significant so me- political shift, though, in November twenty twenty two, when both the House and Senate and in, in the state legislature flipped to to Democratic, right? Absolutely. So you have a new government, you have a new Democratic government, obviously a Democratic governor um, reelected. Um, a Democratic governor, it should also be pointed out, who um, who is in the national spotlight, right, as a young, uh, up-and-coming, um, perhaps even one day presidential candidate. And obviously you have a kind of stunning event that, um, you know, there's no other way to put it. It's a small town that looks like every American small town, right? It's the kind of place where people find these things unimaginable. And those things all put together meant that Michigan went from essentially having no gun laws passed in four decades to suddenly passing, as you say, the safe storage, the universal background checks, and the um, red flag laws um, in just a few months. Chip, we're we're talking about this trial in Oxford, Michigan. Also, we started the hour with the report on the botched police response in Uvalde. Are you seeing any shift in national sentiment around gun safety policy? I think so. I mean, after after Uvalde um, and the mass shooting at the supermarket in Buffalo, um, that directly led to um, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which kind of like in the situation in Michigan, we really had not had um, any new federal legislation on guns in nearly three decades. And after those two shootings, um, that led to that law, which um, you know didn't go as far as a lot of people would have wanted, but it did include some significant changes to 
things like enhancing background checks for gun buyers under 21 and increasing funding for um, you know, school violence prevention and mental health in schools. Um, so things really have shifted. And I think we're seeing probably the biggest shift on the state level, um, like Professor Yonko was talking about. It's not just in Michigan, though. It's also in Minnesota and other states that are um, Oregon, for example, that are, you know, also passing uh, really slews of um, gun, re gun reform laws. Echo, Jennifer Crumbly is on trial right now in Oxford. Her husband goes on trial in March. Will these trials differ from one another or will they be using mostly the same evidence and arguments in both? Well, so here, let me be very clear that I'm speculating. I think this is totally plausible speculation, but it is speculation. So for a long time, as this trial was approaching, the Crumleys had a joint trial, right? Um, this was both because everybody thought, well, it was at least conceivable that the evidence in defense of both would be terribly similar, but it was also because the Crumleys wanted to sort of paint a joint picture of themselves as parents doing their best in it together. It was somewhat of a surprise, I don't think legally odd, but somewhat of a surprise when um, just a few months ago, the Crumleys asked to have their trials separated. Um, and obviously, not being in the room, we don't know exactly why that is. But the only kind of immediate um, intuition is that some evidence has come out that one of them thinks is more damning to the other. Um, you know, one of the things criminal lawyers talk about is blaming the empty chair. And you can't do that if your spouse is sitting right next to you. But if some fact comes out that makes the husband look like he was less uh, attentive or the wife looks like she was less attentive, then that defendant wants to be able to say maybe something like it was neither of our fault. But if it was one of our fault, it was their fault. Um, and so we don't know exactly what that evidence could have been that split the trial. We don't know exactly where the rupture has come from, but it has been a significant development in the trial. Well, I'm curious as we wrap here, the effect you think the result of this trial will have on precedent and the way we consider parental responsibility in mass shootings, Echo? Yeah, you know, Chip... Um, Chip made a great point that we've had some of these cases occur, and there have been, you know, as always in criminal law, there have been some quieter cases that have been um, the subject of plea bargaining. But as he pointed out, these cases were for negligently leaving a gun around. It, it's a big step to go from prosecuting somebody for the crime of leaving a gun to making them responsible for the killing that occurred afterwards. Um, so I'll just say two quick things. I mean, on the one hand, it could be the classic saying that it's an extraordinary case, bad cases make bad law, or bad cases make new law. On the other hand, anytime you give prosecutors a new tool, the life of the law is precedent, and this will certainly rocket around the country and give prosecutors new methods and new ideas. That's Echo Yanka. He's an associate dean for faculty and research and the Thomas M. Cooley Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. Also with us today, Chip Brownlee. He's a reporter at The Trace. That's a newsroom covering gun policy. Chip, Echo, thank you. Today's show was produced by Arfi Getty and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.
These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.